We'll be in Acts chapter 10 today. If you take your Bibles and turn there, Acts chapter 10, we will continue our study in the book of Acts this morning. All right, let me ask you to stand today if you would. We're going to read not all of Acts 10 and 11 as the screen suggests, um, but we're going to read some of it. It's a big story and really um, it's a great unfolding of truth, a revelation from God to Peter and then Peter to the church. So I want to make sure for a second context. Uh, plus, these, I think these ancient words can be helpful to us as we read them. So let's do that beginning in verse number one. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band. He was a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. So he'd been praying to Jehovah, Yahweh, the best he could with the light that he had. This is what this man is doing. He saw in a vision, evidently, about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. Let me stop here. So this man is sort of like a practicing Jew, though he's a Gentile. In the ninth hour, significant, because that is the most significant hours the, the Jews would pray during the day. So he is a, pros, a proselyte of sorts. He sees the Jews something here that, that, that's meaningful to him. And so he forsakes the pagan gods and he's trying, as the Jews are, to seek a relationship with the God of heaven. And so God comes to him in that ninth hour in verse 4. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. And he lodgeth with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. And when the angel which spake unto Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants and devout soldier of them that waited on him constantly. And when he had declared all that these things unto them, he sent them, as God said, to Joppa. Now on the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew nigh into the city, Peter went up to the housetop to pray about the sixth hour, another time the Jews prayed. And he became very hungry and would have eaten. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. So he too is going to see a vision. And he saw heaven opened and a certain vessel descending into him, as had been a great sheet knit at the four corners and let down to the earth, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now, this was because of a Levitical commandment that God had given the nation of Israel not to eat what he classified as unclean meats, and it was meant to separate them from the world and teach them devotion to God. So he's still operating under a Levitical Old Testament law in the things that he would eat and not eat. Things of the sheet were unclean, and up to this point, for the Jewish people, forbidden. Verse 15, And the voice spake unto him again the second time, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. Now this was done thrice. It was, Peter's not getting it. And, uh, and the vessel was received up again into heaven. Now while Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean, behold, the men that were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. It's just, the timing here is impeccable. And called and asked whether Simon, which was surnamed Peter, were lodged there. 
Now, while Peter thought on the vision, the Spirit said unto him, Behold, three men seek thee. He's given a little heads up. Arise therefore and get thee down and go with them, doubting nothing. Don't hesitate, for I have sent them. Well, then Peter went to the men which were sent to him from Cornelius and said, Behold, I am he whom you speak, seek. What is the cause wherefore you are come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, and one that feareth God, and of good report among all the nations of the Jews, was warned from God by an holy angel to send for thee into this house and hear words of thee. And then called he them in and lodged them, which by the way is a big deal because um, Peter had a long way to go in terms of prejudice, but having Jew, uh, Gentiles come to his house was something that Jews would not have normally done. Uh, so th there's, there's something more than just those quick words. And on the morrow Peter went away with them, and certain brethren from Joppa accompanied him. So he takes a group, there's actually six men who go with him. And the morrow after they entered into Caesarea, and Cornelius waited for them, and had called together his kinsmen and near friends, so a group there of his family and friends. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him, and fell down his feet, and worshipped him. But Peter took him up, saying, Stand up, I myself also am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in, and found many that were come together. And he said unto them, uh, said unto them Ye know how that is unlawful thing for a man, as a Jew, to keep company, or come into one of another nation. And so there's this real wall in his mind. I'm not even supposed to be here. Uh, it's, it's illegal in my, my religion, old religion Jewish, to do this. But God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore came I unto you without gainsaying. As soon as I was sent for, I asked therefore, for what intent ye have sent for me? That's the question. And Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour. At the ninth hour I prayed in my house. Behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, an angel, and said, Cornelius, thy prayer is heard, and thine alms are had in remembrance in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa, and call hither Simon, whose surname is Peter. He has lodged the house of one Simon the Tanner by the seaside, who when he cometh shall speak unto thee. And immediately therefore I sent to thee, and thou hast well done that thou art come. Now, therefore, are we all here present before God to hear all things that are commanded thee of God? Okay, in verses 34 and 35 are really what our, our idea is going to be for today because this is the, the central idea of the text. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Now the story doesn't end there. It goes well into chapter 11. So what happens is Peter gives him a brief gospel synopsis. Jesus was a Savior. He went about doing good. He was crucified. He was risen again. We've been witnesses of that. Well, when that happens, all the men believe. Cornelius, his household believe. Um, the sign of that is the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They speak in tongues or in other languages as the same sign that was given to the Jews in Jerusalem and the Samaritans as well. And now the same sign confirming that God's working in all these places has come to them. It's a visible sign to Peter so he knows they in fact are saved. And so everybody rejoices. Word gets back to Jerusalem. Gentiles were saved and they're going, not so Lord. <laughs> they kind of share Peter's attitude at the beginning. But Peter gets there and he says, hey, I saw it. I, I witnessed what God's done. He rehearses the whole story again, which I won't read the third time. And, and the guys all go, man, that's awesome finally. And they all rejoice. 
And the lesson is learned that God wants us to learn in verse 34, then Peter opened his mouth and said, of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Our Heavenly Father, I pray for the next few moments that you would, uh, Lord, help us to do some introspection. Um, Lord, to look inside at our own hearts, and which can be desperately wicked. And Lord, where we may struggle with accepting the truth, or at least, Lord, the application and living of verse 34, I, I, I pray you'd help us to overcome that. And I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing. That was a long time. I'm going to talk about prejudice today. The idea of being prejudiced. And just, just saying the word, it sort of sounds ugly, doesn't it? It has that ugly connotation to it. Prejudice is an attitude that we can easily discern, and we would like to think we recoil at when we see it in other people. It is also something, unfortunately, though, we often fail to see in our own conduct or attitudes. Prejudice is a result of over-characterizing people, lumping them together in groups based on some common trait that we think or that we perceive they share that is usually an exaggerated characteristic. It could be about age. You know, we're uncomfortable around older people. Um, it, it, it could be about uh, gender. And, of course, we would know the long history of, of America's fight and other people fight for equality uh, of genders. It, it could be about skin color, ethnicity. Um, of course, the ongoing uh, debate about gender, which there's a moral argument there. But it's easy to have ugly attitudes about it. And then, of course, things political and then with other religious groups that we don't just to disagree with, but, but we can be hateful towards. We tend to feel prejudiced towards people who differ from us. And I think we all understand that intuitively. Um, there's something that makes them different from me that makes me uncomfortable. It makes, maybe I feel afraid. Maybe I have a reason to be afraid from a past experience. Um, but there's someone who's that's different from us. And so we discriminate based on that unfamiliarity. Prejudice results in a host of anti-Christian behavior. Uh, people that we're uncomfortable with or we might be prejudiced against, we villainize them. We make them evil. We shun, censure, avoid them. Uh, we have a lack of empathy or concern towards them. And we assign them, whether we are really meaning to or not, a lesser value. And, and that can devolve to the point where we treat people as not human. We dehumanize them. And all we have to do is look at history to know that mankind can do that, Right? Because prejudice is ugly, and you and I know that intellectually, if not theologically, disgusting, it's uncomfortable for most people. We'd rather just hear, you know, the, uh, the networks rage about it. But in honest conversations, it's uncomfortable. And again, we, we may, in a way, be guilty of perpetrating it. But Christians, by Scripture, should be the most prejudiced free people in all the world. Now, I want you to think about this. The Bible teaches us as Christians that God made Adam and Eve humans in His likeness, both male and female. Humanity bears the image of God. Therefore, all having the same value, all being equal in worth, and we know that God came for the sins of the whole world, all of humanity. 
We know this, there's none righteous, no, not one. All of our righteousness, and I mean every person from every situation in the world, all their righteousness is filthy rags. Um, there's, no, there's no hierarchy in Ponscum. We're all equally wicked. All of us are dead in our sins. All are unrighteous. All of us are fearfully and wonderfully made. Jesus erased distinction between Jew and Gentile. I mean, that's in the text here, but he goes on to say it in other places as well. Um, he, he made all of us the object of his love. He died for all of us, for people of every race, social class, and political persuasion. The story of the Good Samaritan, recently preached by Brother Andrew, which, by the way, was an excellent message if you missed it a couple of Sunday nights ago, extends this concept clearly. We're not only to accept others, but literally go out of our way to help the hurting and alienated people in different social groups in our world. It is wrong for us as Christians to just keep going by people who, who might need love, care, compassion, doing good things, but, but not really sharing the love of Christ the way we can. Now, I'm not trying to be critical. I, I just, I'm trying to be honest. You know, there's some information that's difficult to hear, at least for me, despite all of us knowing that. And I would think everyone in this room can say amen to everything I said so far, right? Okay. Despite this, in numerous social experiments, it has consistently been observed that the average, and I'll use this phrase, churchgoer, is more intolerant than the culture at large. Let me say it a different way, more prejudiced. More specifically, and more perplexing, a correlation has been found that churchgoers, because I don't want to use the word Christians, who score higher on their characteristics and habits in the idea of increasing a vertical relationship with God tend to score lower in terms of discrimination than people who have an average relationship with God. Is that perplexing to you? If it is, you can do this. You understand what it's saying? Now, one social experimenter said it this way bluntly, middle-class evangelicals and fundamentalists are not associated with increased love and acceptance for others, but with increased intolerance, prejudice, and bigotry as a whole. Okay, is that hard for anyone else to hear but me? Because I would classify myself as that fundamentalist group. Now that makes me uncomfortable, and I need to think about that. And it's something that I think all of us should think about and pause and try to understand that a little bit. And I would say, if you consider for a moment all the things done in the name of Christ over the last 2,000 years, it becomes a less of a stretch for me. Right? We have a history in the United States with slavery that's... Uh, that has some association with Christianity that's not real pretty. And the people here before us, Native Americans, well, there was a systematic eradication. Okay, genocide? You, are you with me? It's really uncomfortable, I, I get it. And I know a lot said about that out there that is tainted and whatever else. 
I'm just saying it's sometimes it's, it's hard carrying out Christianity in a Christ-honoring way. And I, and, I, and I think the reason sometimes this happens, and I'm going to lose my nails completely, is we have an honest and sincere desire to be right with God to the point, the harder we try to be right with God, the more evil we may see in others. We make that, we turn that difference into an evil. Are you with me? We turn it into an evil. And these are just people who don't yet have the knowledge that you think that you have, and they need what you have to be what you are, and yet we don't offer that with a kind mitt. We often hand it with a good right hand. And so we're ugly to people who are outside our circle. I, I have heard more ugly preaching among evangelicals about people outside of evangel evangelical circles or fundamental circles than I, I can stand in a lifetime. And it's not even us. Sometimes we're ugly to each other. So if you're not in my sector group, even though you might be a Christian, I got plenty of negative things to say about you. Does anybody here know what I'm talking about? I think it may be a sincere desire to take us close to the Lord that we just can't, we don't know how to handle that difference or that sanctification we're trying to, to get. And so the people who aren't like us, different than us, we don't handle that. This was true for the, ch the church in Jesus' day. Jesus was teaching us to love our neighbor as thyself. We have the, the sermons of the Good Samaritan. We know that Jesus went to the outcast. He went to the Gentiles of his day. He saw them as worthy of his acceptance. He saw them as people made in his image. And he taught all these lessons because people of his day were prejudiced. And again, I think there's reasons for all of this, but that's another sermon. Christianity stresses oneness of mankind. Prejudice separates. Christianity seeks to make life fuller and richer for others, but prejudice impoverishes and isolates. Christians open the arms wide while prejudice closes the arms. Christianity claims the sovereignty of God over all people, but prejudice claims sovereignty or superiority of one group over another. And socially, recently, we've seen an incredible uptick in prejudice in our culture, and sometimes ill ill motive, guised in social movements, politics, and divisiveness, and I don't have time to do all of that today. Um, I would just say this, the media sometimes plays on our prejudice and seeks to make it worse. Because number one, that's good for ratings and it's good for certain politics. But that's just a bigger issue. What I want us to see in our text today is what God is saying. Judaism fundamentally, historically, and even scripturally had reason and impetus for separating themselves from other people, the people of Canaan, for example. They were called to be a distinctive people, a pure people, an undefined people, and they were to have the unique status as God's chosen people. They were the, the seed of Abraham, but that was supposed to be a privilege and a responsibility, not a point of arrogancy or superiority. And they began to view their distinctnesses as superiority instead of responsibility, and so to them, everything and anyone who wasn't a Jew was defiled. To use their words, they were a dog. They would be shunned, avoided, disdained. As Peter's saying, I'm not supposed to talk to you. I'm not saving my house. I'm not supposed to come. This, they, were, they were dogs. And that's, the word, that's biblical language, not just my hyper hyperbole. 
They viewed the pursuit of God in purity at odds with love and grace towards other people. Which, by the way, those should never be at odds. The closer you get to God, the more you should love people. Does that make sense? The more you should understand their need, not just separate yourself from them. They pressed their religion too far in the very effort of trying to become more honoring to God in their fundamentalism, they were becoming less. Far less. And that's been a problem for Christians throughout the ages. It's persistent, it's perpetual, and it is perplexing. In the text, time I'm reading, Christianity was new, brand new. But the church was growing, and only the Jews have been saved in mass. Now there's some changes because God had sent Philip uh, to Samaria, Ethiopian eunuch was there, and others, he said, the Bible said he preached to, I'm assuming people were saved. So, but they were distant brothers to the Jews, they had a history together, and so there was some discomfort with Samaritans being saved, but there wasn't not so God, it was just difficult for them. Uh, we have to understand that at that time, following Christ was still sort of viewed as an add-on to Judaism. He was the Jewish Messiah. They had been preaching about. And, and so they, even these, they accepted Christ, but they, they were struggling to let the borders of their religion be broader. And so they were keeping some of the Levitical law and, and still really perpetuating this attitude of prejudice and separation. And by the way, those two words don't have to go together. I'm not making separation evil. I'm just saying it can become that if you don't hold it in the right spirit. Okay, so don't press my words. And they were still trying to observe the Jewish laws and customs. As a matter of fact, they were making it a requirement. You still have to be circumcised. And that was a thing that Paul and Peter said, no, you don't have to be anymore. Um, you, you still have to go to the synagogue. No, you don't. Now it's about the church. And so they, they, they were holding on to the temple worship and things like this. But slowly it's been revealed that while Christianity had its roots in Judaism, this was a far greater revelation of God. This was the truth. Stephen understood this when he acknowledged God couldn't be contained in the temple. He could be worshipped in other places beside the temple. And of course he gave his life for that. But the disciples, Peter principally here as the leader, still had some ground to cover in terms of prejudice. It was ingrained in his mind and his thinking. But Jesus, the Holy Spirit, in Acts 10, 11, obliterates, shatters their prejudice in a man named Cornelius. Cornelius was obviously a Roman a Roman leader. And as a leader of an army that occupied their land, he wasn't loved. Does that make sense? Okay. <laughs> and he wasn't loved. But this is fascinating. There's something in the character of centurion. Three times the Bible mentions centurions and all three in a favorable light. Which is fascinating. Three times, not five. Which is fascinating to me. Jesus found a centurion whose daughter was sick, came to him for help, and he basically said, Lord, I don't have to follow you. If you just say the word, my daughter will be healed. And the Lord says, oh my, I've not seen so great a faith in all of Israel as in this centurion. It was on the cross when Jesus was dying that a centurion said, this truly must be the Son of God. And the third time here we see a centurion who's devout in heart and faith, at least in faith he has towards God, asking for more light, which God answers that in prayer. And so for all the animosity and hate, there was something in these men of character and was searching for truth. And so, Cornelius was that man. The Bible describes him twice as a devout man, a man who prayed, a man who gave alms, uh, he was good to the people. 
he wasn't a full convert in terms of, I doubt he was circumcised, but he was trying to follow the, the Jewish faith. He was that kind of man. Well, this man resided in Caesarea, a beautiful seaside port. For those going to Israel, you will go there. Beautiful place. It was, it was beautified by Herod, and a lot of what he did is still there to be seen. And uh, the palace and the, the different pavilions. But the Jews didn't like Caesarea because that was the headquarters of the Roman Empire in, in Judea. So one day while praying to Jehovah as a seeker, Colonius sees a vision. You know the story. And for the sake of time, I'm going to turn a few pages. And so Cornelius sends for Peter. Peter comes, a little hesitant, and he sees the sheet, you know, and it's repeated three times. All this food comes down, some of which is creepy things, things not supposed to be eaten. And, you know, Peter may have thought it was a test from the Lord. I won't eat that. And the Lord says, no, I'm telling you, you can eat it. Not so, you can, you can. And it's brought up, and it's still not in his head clear. And so God orchestrates this, this great transaction with Cornelius to provide the living illustration of the vision he saw in his dreams. And so Peter here still struggling, but making progress, agrees to go. He's not comprehending fully what's happening here. Um, but he, he agrees, and of course we know the story, um, that he sees what's happening and declares, you know, God is not a respecter of persons. There's men there with him. I think there's six, we'll read later in the story, who verify what Peter sees. There's a whole family of people there. Uh, from Cornelius, and the verse I read, 10, 34, 35, is that central key revelation which Peter needed to get. The whole point of all the story was to get Peter to verses 34 and 35. The ensuing verses preach, again, that simple gospel, and they're saved. And I rehearsed that part of the story. The space and time scripture gives this story, tells me it's important, right? Almost two full chapters given this story. And it's repeated three times in that. I think this is a watershed moment. You, you and I might not appreciate it. We are Gentiles. We think nothing of it. But in this day, watershed moment. Like incredible revelation. Um, while this was referenced in the Old Testament, they did never grasp this. They always thought they would be like the head and Gentiles might get to have some part in it, but they'd always be the tail. But this is something very different. It's a watershed moment where there's a realigning of old ways of thinking. And there's this clarity. God is not a respecter of persons in any way. But we as humans still struggle with that spirit and attitude. Again, I, I don't know all the ins and outs of prejudice. I just know it's ugly. And I've tried to offer maybe some argument why Christians may unintentionally be that way. Um, I just know this prejudice has used, been used to do some horrible things in history. We're not quick to understand people. Like the world large, we don't consider geopolitics and people's own histories for the reason they are where they are. We don't consider historical abuses. We don't know someone's heart and motive. Um, we villainize very easily those different than us. And I can, can, can give some examples here, but that just makes us more uncomfortable. Um, but it's part of our history. Everywhere the scripture grants righteousness and people try to pursue it, some can do that with a good heart and others struggle with it. Because the gained righteousness makes you look uglier and that you're uglier, I don't like you. 
quick application. Not rocket science. You ready? There's no place in Christianity for any kind of prejudice. End of story, period. There's no place in Eastland Baptist Church for any kind of prejudice. Anyone who walks in that door will always and forever be worthy and merit our best attention. And while you may not have a hard feeling towards them or be pressed that way, there are some people you're going to be more quick to go to and others you're going to be less quick to go to, and you need to figure out the why. Because otherwise it's just a level of prejudice. Well, maybe you did. It's there. Well, they don't look like they have much money. No difference. Well, they're not my social structures or whatever else. This may, this may shock you and bother you. I've had people come to me and tell me, as a reason, we're going to go to another church because the people here don't fit our, my socioeconomic class. It's been a while, but that's happened. And I, 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 there are different receptions different people get, and I think that's problematic. I'm not accusing us. I think that happens in every church all the time. You don't know who, whom God may want to put the head of the table. There's no place for divisiveness, hostility among members, tribes, groups, or anybody. Acts of unkindness in general should not be tolerated here or in Christianity. We are about openness, compassion, forgiveness, and extending grace to people. The church in Jerusalem, there was a schism in them. I mean, they just get started. And all of a sudden, they're dividing between the Greeks and the Jews. Who's getting the more distribution of food? I mean, it just starts that fast. All, all, all I want us to know is that, that can't happen here. It's an anathema to grace. We should avoid behaviors, attitudes that separate, exclude, make others feel unwanted, unloved unappreciated. Every member of the church is valuable. Every soul is worthy of your very best time, love, and effort to help. The Bible doubly emphasizes this in our command to reach out to the poor, reach out to the poor, reach out to the impoverished, reach out to the isolated, the socially ostracized. Jesus came to preach the gospel to the poor. He, he went out of the way for all, all kinds of social groups, all kinds of races. Number two, you need to grapple with what makes you uncomfortable as a Christian. There are some elements of Christianity that come easier, and there are some elements that come harder. Like, let me give you an example that's unrelated. Witnessing is something you should grapple with. Because it's really easy to avoid, because you can otherwise clean yourself up and do what's right and, and, and follow a lot of stuff while totally avoiding the uncomfortable nature of ever sharing your faith or, or track with somebody. But it needs to be dealt with. You need to grapple with that. And if it's been a long time since you went and greeted someone that's doing the church, for whatever reason, you ought to grapple with that. And when you hear political things said on TV and, and some of the devices of, you need to make sure you're filtering why you think what you think about different groups and people. It may or may not align with what the Bible says. Right. FYI, much of what is in conservative politics is not Christian. Amen. I could spend days on that. Maybe working in the John 3.16 mission, maybe helping other groups of people that you don't immediately know would be good for us. Number three is really important, and 
I have to hurry. We need to learn to hold true differences in Christian character. We need to learn to hold true differences in Christian character. Listen, God, God calls me to be separate. But separate means holy. And holy, as an extension, gives away love and grace. We've got to get all that together. Does God call me to be holy and separated? Yes. Does He call me to come out of the world? He absolutely does. But He's told me to come out of the world's system, the world's values, the world's priorities, what the world seeks in life. But I, I can't pull out altogether because I'm the salt and light of the world. And so if I do nothing but come to church and go home and go to church and come home, you're missing it. Yes, you should pursue righteousness. Yes, you should pursue purity. Yes, you should be the best Christian you can be and at the same time grow in love and grace and kindness, forgiveness and extending yourself in a sacrificial way to everyone. Hold our differences in Christian love. You can be different from others and not despise them. We're not at war with unsaved people. We're not, we're not at war with the Muslims. They need Christ. We have disagreements, major, maybe eternal differences with the Catholics, but they need to know what we know. Are you with me on this? I'm telling you, our world, and I am going to preach about this one day soon, we are so, we're being so divided politically, so divided, and there's reasons for that. Both sides are trying to get their base solidified, and, and I, you, can, you can reject it, you can do what you want to, but a lot of contemporary Christian conservatism is getting its cues from the religious right and not from the Bible. I'm not against it. I just wanted to be smart enough to know the difference. Our churches sometimes divide to the point of being sectarian, overly divisive. Let me say it this way. I have to stop. The identity of Troy Durrell is, is many, plethora. I'm a dad. Um, I'm a pastor. I'm a husband. I'm a grandfather. I'm a fundamentalist, unapologetically. I'm a conservative in what I think you, what we think that means to each other, unapologetically. There's a lot of things that I am that I might could line my name under the banner a little bit, but I'm telling you what, more than anything else in this world, I need to be at the top of the banner list, Christian. And everything else falls under that filter. And if the other titles are at odds with that filter, I realign with that filter. And I exclude these others if I have to. Because I'm telling you, I look at a lot of conservative Christians who identify under another banner at the top. And Christianity is something they have in their back pocket. Well, they identify with but politics or social issues or economic issues play a larger, bigger filter. Some religious sect, some religious group, some just right set of alignments plays a top before Christianity. Hey, you want to know how to live your life? It's found here. It's not on TV. And we need to be more Bereanish and making sure what other people say and the people who we support. That if they don't say what this book says, they probably don't deserve our support. Right. 
no matter what banner they wear. Amen. Am I as red as Josh yet? Because I feel really red. I'll stop with this thought. God forbid that we say God forbid to someone who needs His love. Not so, Lord. I'm trying to do what's right. Not so, Lord. I'm not going to talk to them. Not so, Lord. I won't associate with them. Not so, Lord. I'm not going to be a part of that. Not so, Lord. He says, don't you, what I, what I call unclean, don't you call, these are people who I made in my image. These are people I love. These are people that you need to go in the world for. Hey, look, insulate this. Insulate it with the Word of God, being here, take care of what's in here. But don't let our faith and our pursuit of righteousness keep us from people who need what we have because they're unrighteous. I'm not saying you're going to be best friends with them. That would be foolish and unwise. But figure out what separation means. Those people need your love. They need your message. They need your heart. They need your compassion. So much of the schism in America could be healed if people loved each other. If Christians did a better job of loving others. Don't let our pursuit of God have any, there's no odds with that in, in loving people. Hey, I've lost more notes. No place for it here. You with me? top of our banner list, top of who we are, is I'm going to be like Jesus. You look at His life, you follow His example, you model yourself after that, and, and you'll know where to be. Let me ask you to stand with me if you would.